God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. And so we've come to an end. One last Sunday, those of us who were able to make it to church, we sing our alleluias. We shout with a special measure of joy because we know what is coming. On Wednesday, we'll return to church. Clergy will smear ashes on our foreheads. We will remember we are dust. To dust we shall return. Lent begins. But first today we shout. We make our song Alleluia. We've come to the end of the season after Epiphany. Our Roman Catholic siblings have a name for the time after the Epiphany, which they collect with the summer and the fall Sundays between Pentecost and the start of Advent. They call all of the time when we vest that altar with green, all of that time between the great feasts, they call it ordinary time. And sometimes I'm attracted to this name. I like the idea of ordinary time when life and church go along without a sense of rush, when things are normal. But we've come to an end of this season. We've come to the end of ordinary time. Truthfully, it's been a long season since Epiphany this year. This year, the liturgical days, like the days of winter, have stretched out. It's begun, become really, really long. I'm pretty done with winter, especially after this morning. We call this time ordinary time, but we live in a time that is anything but ordinary. You know that old supposedly Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? This week in front of Congress, a man who once served as the sitting president's attorney said of the supposed leader of the free world, he is a racist, he is a con man, he is a cheat. These times are not ordinary. There's a certain appeal to ordinary time, to this idea that we might return to something more ordinary, return to something more recognizable in our collective life, that we might go back, back to some default setting. Today's strange stories from scripture, they offer a word of caution about that desire to move backwards, that desire to go back to normal, that desire for the ordinary. Moses and Jesus' faces, they're changed today. The encounter with God that both Jesus and Moses have on a mountaintop, it reshapes them. They come back looking strange. Flannery O'Connor, the Southern writer, once quipped, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you odd. The scripture today cautions us, following God a little too closely, looking on the divine, Spending time on your cushion in quiet prayer, spending too much time in church, too much time with scripture, too much time following Jesus, it will make you odd. You will become less ordinary. Before I go much further, I need to pause with this story of Jesus' face. I have a difficult time with this passage, because even though the color of Jesus' skin is not mentioned in the story, nor any story about the so-called transfiguration. In art, it has ordinarily been depicted as gleaming white, like Jesus' clothes. This story has been cited by white Christians historically as evidence that Jesus shared our racial identity, our color. This story has done violence 
And so I have a difficult time preaching this story. I find that every year that I have to preach it, and it comes up twice a year in our calendar of readings, every year that I preach here at Holy Communion, I have a harder time with this story. Because our cultural background noise about color and race, it's very strong. I'll give you an example from my own life. Like most of my fellow white students at the University of San Diego, in my sophomore year, I was doing my best to get a tan. Now, I have to be very careful because my fair skin turns lobster real quick. But vanity is strong at California colleges, and so I tried. And often my trials involved SPF 30 sunscreen. One afternoon, I invited a friend from the dorm to come and lay by the pool with me, and she laughed as she declined. I don't want to get too brown, she told me. I didn't go to the pool that afternoon because instead I listened as my friend told me about the pressure she faced as a darker-skinned Filipino woman. She described how when she was a little girl, her female relatives brought back from the Philippines the first bleaching lotions she ever, ever used on her skin, how the chemicals burned. I remember my surprise and my anger it was the first time I really understood that racism, it can be internalized. Racism comes in all shades and the repercussions are often perpetuated within communities of color. There's a strong background noise with the text we have today. So we need to be clear. Jesus was not white. He wasn't. Jesus people genetically have more in common with today's Iraqis than with Northern European Jews. Jesus most likely had dark skin and Arabic features. Dr. Christina Cleveland, who incidentally has one of the coolest titles of anyone I know, professor of the practice of reconciliation at Duke Divinity School, Christina Cleveland has said, many well-meaning Christians minister across a social gap, but whites can minister to people of color without truly seeing them as equals. And higher income people can serve lower income people while knowing little about their daily lives. Jesus' ethnic identity and social location require that we must not only minister to people who are marginalized, we must stand with them as Jesus stands with them. But first, those who still perceive a white Christ must ask whether they can and will worship a dark-skinned Jesus. The tension in Professor Cleveland's words comes from a consistently reinforced depiction. Jesus has been shown as white. And if Jesus has been shown as white, then those of us who share those identity markers, especially white men, have had a monopoly on interpreting Jesus. Even here at Holy Communion, the pictures of Jesus are white. The stained glass windows feature white Jesus after white Jesus. All of the saints in our windows have light-skinned faces. As you heard me say last week in the sermon, as you heard our senior warden say in our capital campaign video, we're raising funds to make changes to some of our stained glass. It is time to put an end to the ordinary way we tell these stories. Our kids deserve to grow up in a church where Jesus and Mother Mary and the saints and the angels look like their whole neighborhood. 
where all skin colors are associated with holiness and godliness and beauty. It's time to put an end to ordinary, where some images are held up while others are held down. It's time to transfigure, to change the face of the ordinary, of the norm. This week, the United Methodists voted by a slim majority to reaffirm and reinforce another ordinary way of doing business in the church. The official stance of the denomination will remain that LGBTQ plus people cannot be married or ordained. The news carried a particular pain for many of us in this church. Many of us have survived this argument in our own denomination or in the church we grew up attending. Homophobia, transphobia, and misogyny are still the majority voices in the church. They still, they still hold the ascendancy. Churches like Holy Communion, like the Episcopal Church, our wider denomination, we're in the minority. And that news came crashing down this week, and for many of us it was difficult. We changed our sign outside Holy Communion to say, LGBTQ Methodists, God loves you. Not because we're hoping disaffected Methodists will come here, but because we stand in solidarity with all God's beloved queer faithful people in every church, in every tradition. We witness the ordinary proclamation that the ordinary proclamation of hate, that it's wrong. Already there are pastors who are organizing Already we have siblings in the United Methodist Church who are working to overturn and to defy this legislation. Already there are faithful queer Christians who are ordained or are preparing for ordination. Already there are same-gender couples who are preparing to be married in Methodist churches because the ordinary way of doing things isn't enough. The ordinary way is less than God hopes for. The ordinary way leaves too many people out the ordinary way won't stand. This is a time for extraordinary love, for extraordinary work, for extraordinary faith. This is a time for extraordinary churches to work to proclaim God's love in this world. Jesus and Moses' faces today shine, but not in a way that even the Bible seems capable of describing. We do a disservice to these texts if we try to fit them into our own sense of the ordinary. St. Gregory of Nyssa, writing in the 4th century, described Moses' encounter with God as a disclosure of God's, quote, dazzling darkness. Maybe that image, dazzling darkness, might approach better the strangeness of these stories the wildness of God, of what happens to both characters' appearance. Moses has to put a veil over his face, the change is so distracting. Jesus tells the disciples not to say anything. Their faith, their closeness to God, the message that they preach has made them anything but ordinary. God has made them odd. We've come to an end in the season of the church, and it's particularly fitting that these stories bring an end to ordinary time. Today we shout Alleluia for the invitation to be more than ordinary, for the invitation to stand in solidarity with our neighbors, for the invitation to the work God calls us toward. 
We shout Alleluia because we are invited by God to transfigure, to grow, to become more ourselves. We are invited to be part of transforming our city, our nation, and our world. We may never get back to ordinary time. Alleluia. Thanks be to God. Amen.